Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is good to gather with you this morning to worship our our Savior Christ, who is Judge. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Kelton. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here of Stafford Baptist Church. We continue our service of worship this morning now by hearing from God's Word preached. So if you would, please join me in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 16, where we are going to be in verses 21 through 28 today, following Jesus. Matthew 16 21 through 28, following Jesus. If you're following along in the Bible provided for you in the pew, you can find that on page 822. 822. As you turn there, you know, knowing how things end can dramatically change how we experience the way there. Knowing how things end can dramatically change the way how we experience the way there. For example, I sometimes go back and watch previous championship runs, like the Red Sox beating the Yankees in the American League Championship Series, 2004, or how the Nationals beat the Astros in the World Series, 2019. When I know how it ends, who comes out on top, a strikeout, or who's down in the eighth by a few runs, doesn't have me worried. Maybe you're not a sports fan. Okay, you might experience the same thing in in that movie or book that you've enjoyed a dozen times. The, The setbacks, the twists are now anticipated moments of triumph in the story. You know, of course, we don't know how our lives will go, not in the same way as the books we've read. But we do know ultimately how our lives will end. God has told us where all of history is going and where we all will be on that day at the end of history. And that should dramatically change the way that we all live. We know that all of history is heading toward a day of judgment. On that day, every one of us will be in the same place doing the same thing, receiving from Jesus the judge according to what we have done. He will usher in a new and eternal age where that judgment will be fixed forever. So that knowledge of how things end should dramatically change the way that we think about Jesus. And that knowledge should dramatically change the way that we live our lives. We should do everything, whatever the cost, to make sure that we are on the right side of that day. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to give his disciples some shocking news. Peter has just confessed Jesus as the Christ, and now Jesus lets them know it's not going to go like they might expect. He is going to be rejected and killed. Oh, and plus, he is calling them to the same path, a life of self-denial and cross-carrying. That's a lot to take in. That's not what they were expecting. So, in order to give them comfort, he tells them how it's all going to end. It will all be worth it. The hard path leads to life. The victory they were expecting because the Christ has come, that's still going to happen. Just not now. Later. He is going to come back in glory. It's unexpected, but Christ's suffering is God's plan in our path. So let's read of this surprising turn in Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind to the things of God, but on things of man. 
Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, it is to this that we have been called. Because Christ suffered for us, He has left us an example that we might follow in His steps. Father, I pray this morning as we consider the teaching of Christ, Lord, that that His suffering was Your plan and our path, or that You would give us grace to be confident that this is Your goodwill, or confident that in giving up our life, we will find it. We're confident that one day we will be with Christ in glory, that he will come again, that he will judge, that he will bring us into his presence forever. It's in Christ's name that we pray this. Amen. Well, what's, the, what's the main takeaway of this whole passage? All eight verses in one phrase? Well, it might be this. As unexpected as Christ's suffering might seem, it is God's plan and our path. As unexpected as Christ's sufferings might seem, it is God's plan and our path. So after Peter's confession of Christ in the the passage right before this, Jesus here is quick to invert what they might be expecting about him. Not immediate triumph, but humiliating defeat. But this death will not be the end. It's what must be done. It is God's good and sovereign plan and will be the path for all who want to follow Jesus. And in the end, he promises it will lead to life and glory. So again, as unexpected as Christ's suffering might seem, it is God's plan and our path. We're going to study this passage this morning with two points. First, God's plan, what Christ must do, that in verses 21 through 23. And second, our path, what we must do, that in verses 24 through 28. So two points, God's plan, what Christ must do, and second, our path, what we must do. So let's start our study of this passage back in verse 21 in our first point, God's plan, what Christ must do. Look again at that verse with me. It begins from that time. That time. What is he referring to? Well, he's referring to the passage previous to this, right? What we studied last week. The first confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the one promised and anticipated and and hoped for, who has now arrived. That exact phrase, from that time, shows up one more time in the book of Matthew. When Jesus' ministry began in Matthew 4.17. Matthew writes there, from that time Jesus began to preach. Why do I mention that? Well, just like Matthew 4.17 is the beginning of a whole chapter in Jesus' ministry, so is verse 21 here. It's the first step in a new direction of Jesus' ministry. Everything before was leading up to this point, And everything after follows from this point. Something about what just happened, about Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ, changes how things will move forward. There's going to be a a new element now that Peter, on behalf of the disciples, has, has confessed Jesus as the Christ. And what is the new element? What does he introduce immediately here in verse 21? Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The new element is the explicit teaching of how his ministry will end. 
In fact, the, the primary purpose he has come. Jesus here is predicting his, his own suffering, his death and resurrection. Of course, church this morning, we all know this well. If anything is known about Jesus, it is the fact that he was killed. And because of that, this verse doesn't hit us like it did for Peter so long ago. And so we have to do a little work to get ourselves in their shoes, how they would have heard this for the first time. So we we know that the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah, the Christ. But that expectation was tied in with other expectations, what his arrival would mean for them. That he would usher in a golden era for their people. Certainly Jesus in his ministry was meeting some of their expectations. His miraculous signs were fulfillment of so much of what the Bible had predicted about the Messiah. But in addition to that, the the Christ, it was thought, would be welcomed and celebrated by their people. He would come in and end the Roman occupation of their homeland. He would take the throne and, and usher in his great dominion. So can you get into their minds for a moment? If that's what you're expecting about the Christ. Peter had just called Jesus this this very one, the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. More than just confessing it, Jesus confirms it, saying that this was not the, the product of human speculation, but of divine revelation. And with that public confession, what does Jesus now start teaching? Well, that he is going to go to Jerusalem, the seat of the king, but what will happen to him there? He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Instead of being welcomed and celebrated, the leading religious figures are going to reject and persecute him. And instead of being enthroned to take his dominion and restore the Jewish nation, he says he's going to be killed. I think it's hard for us to imagine the shock, the confusion that Peter and those first apostles were feeling at this moment. We'll get a preview of it in verse 22. But but notice first, Jesus says that he will suffer many things. This bears out in the story that we read. When he arrives in Jerusalem, in Matthew chapter 21, it begins with the, the chief priests and the scribes angry that he is being called the son of David. It continues with the chief priests and elders challenging his authority. He's tested by the Sadducees. The chief priests and elders therefore plot to arrest him and Judas agrees with the chief priests to betray him. Remember, his closest disciples doze in the hour of his need, then flee when he is arrested. He is unjustly tried by the scribes and elders. He is spat on, struck, slapped, and condemned to death. He is whipped with iron and bone-tipped leather. He is stripped, and a crown of thorns is placed on his brow, pressed into place by the strokes of a staff. They place his own cross on his shoulders and force him to carry it to the site of his execution where they nail him to that beam, hoisting him to hang in public where he is mocked and ridiculed. And the very one who confessed him as the Christ denies, not once, not twice, but three times that he even knew this man. Yes, Jesus was to suffer Many things. But notice, too, the word Jesus uses there, that he must go, suffer, and be killed. He must. Is this just because the religious leaders were that evil? Or the Roman oppressors were just that powerful? There is simply no other way. This Jesus plus those leaders and these occupiers means certain death. No. As in the words of Luke in the book of Acts, they did what God's hand and plan had predestined 
to take place. They did what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. The must of verse 21 is divine necessity. This must happen because it is God's plan. It has been God's plan since before even the foundation of the world. The apparent defeat of Christ is God's plan. Why must Christ suffer many things? Why did Jesus have to die? Because that was God's plan in order to bring many sons to glory. Brothers and sisters, remember this morning, there was no other way for you and I to be saved. If there was, he would have done it. All of us were so hopeless in ourselves that the only solution was for the Son of God to take on flesh and die for us. And the only one solution God has done. And friends, everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. None of us can say, I didn't need that. No, he had to for me and for you. But I hope you also notice that last phrase in verse 21. And on the third day, be raised. He wasn't just going to suffer many things and be killed. He would also, on the third day, be raised. Death wouldn't have the last word. See, the disciples were expecting, when the Christ came, immediate glory. They were expecting Jesus to bring in what they thought the prophets were predicting, an earthly and and glorious reign. And the disciples thought that they, as his most intimate followers, were getting in on the ground floor of the the greatest kingdom the world would ever know. What they failed to understand was that their problem wasn't particularly their foreign oppressors, their foreign occupiers. It was that their hearts were occupied by sin. They didn't need someone to lead their rebellion against Rome They needed deliverance from the penalty of their rebellion against God. Their hopes were in fact far too small, as great as they were. How about you? Are your hopes too small? Just hoping for an easier life or some purpose? No, your needs are so far greater. And Jesus offers it because he had to die and he did die to save you from eternal judgment. Jesus was going to die because it is the divine plan to bear the punishment our sins deserve. He was going to die to rescue us from death by himself dying in our place on the cross. We, of course, can look back now on the Old Testament the text that the elders, the chief priests, and scribes were responsible to teach and see how this always has been God's plan. Peter himself would come to see this. We read earlier from from one of Peter's letters where he speaks of Jesus suffering for our sins. He no longer is surprised by this fact. He, He teaches that by quoting from the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, verse 5. That by Jesus' wounds, we are healed. But it'll take some time for Peter to arrive at that conclusion. For now, he is appalled by the suggestion. Verse 22. We see what Peter is thinking. Peter, trying to be tactful, takes Jesus aside. That's that's always a good idea when you have something hard to say to someone. The, The text says that he began to rebuke him. If you're anything like me, you might be feeling some cognitive dissonance right now. Peter had just confessed Jesus to be the Christ and the Son of the living God, divine, and now he thinks he can correct Jesus? Well, it's clearly beyond the bounds of his imagination to consider the Christ being rejected and killed by the religious leaders. He had come to conquer and bring victory. So Peter says, no, this will never happen to you. It's amazing what we can be convinced of is right when we don't have the full picture. 
We can assume that Peter was motivated in his route by, by love for Jesus and faith in God's power. But even with faith and love, he is wrong. Zeal without knowledge is, is dangerous. We can learn briefly that in our own desire to correct others for their good, to always be humble. Maybe it's best to start by asking questions. Well, verse 22 gives the impression that Peter couldn't even finish what he had to say to Jesus. He began to rebuke him. But verse 23, Jesus turns to Peter and replies with force. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The one who had his mind opened by divine revelation, is now setting his mind on the things of man. Peter, who had been called a rock on which Jesus would build his church, is now called a stumbling block. That word hindrance, Jesus uses there, is literally a a trap, a device for catching something. It can mean anything that lures people into error, In other places, Jesus uses it and it's translated as temptation. Jesus here does not mean that that Peter is all of a sudden demon-possessed, but he is the source of satanic temptation to Jesus. This is similar to how Satan has already tempted Jesus. You remember in the, the wilderness, Jesus or Satan promised Jesus the kingdoms of this world without suffering. He tempted Jesus to circumvent God's plan to have universal dominion without the suffering of the cross. Peter here is offering Jesus the same. But I want you to notice, especially saints, how quick and determined Jesus is in fighting this temptation. He doesn't even entertain the idea. It's not appealing to him in the least. Sin is repulsive to our Holy Savior. He lived to do exactly what his father had commanded in perfect and immediate submission. And he did this for you and me. He was able to die for our sins because he was the sinless substitute. He had no sins of his own to die for. We can all learn to fight temptation like our Savior does here. To say to them as as soon as we see them, get away from me. I confess, I I too often entertain temptations. I I consider their proposals. Maybe I should do it your way. God's way does sound pretty hard, doesn't it? Church, follow the example of Jesus to turn away from temptation immediately. Desires that are nurtured lure and entice us into sin and sin into death. So as as soon as you're aware of what's happening, denounce it as evil, as Jesus does. Affirm what is true and good. Turn to God's word and and prayer for support. Notice also here, saints, that Jesus is willing to rebuke his closest earthly friend in order to fight temptation. Church, affection without rebuke is not love. Affection without rebuke is not love. Yes, love in heaven will need no rebuke. But while on earth, love requires us all to give and receive correction. Sometimes even the strong words Jesus has for Peter. Peter, for his part, Jesus says, is setting his mind on the things of man. In other words, his thinking about God and his plan was merely human. The creature's finite thoughts marred by sin cannot fathom the depths of God's plan. Peter assumed, in his human way of thinking, that God could not use defeat to bring about good. And that's true. Merely human ways of thinking about God will always lead us astray. We need Divine thoughts. We need revelation to understand God and His ways. 
So in your life, brothers, sisters, don't try to discern what God is doing in your life based on your own intuitions, based on merely human thoughts. Trust God and seek wisdom in his word. I'm guessing it might surprise you. But Jesus, the mind of our perfect Lord, both God and man, his mind was set on the things of his Father. He knew that he must go suffer and be killed and be raised to the glory of his father and for the good of his people. The truth is the disciples will not receive glory when they come into Jerusalem. Glory was for later. They would receive glory with all of us when Jesus returns in his glory. No, for now they would receive the same thing that Jesus would, suffering and death. That's what Jesus goes on to teach his disciples and our second point, our path, what we must do, starting in verse 24, our path, what we must do. In this second half of our passage, Jesus turns from what he must do in his going, suffering, dying, and being raised to what what we must do if we are going to follow him. If his path was through suffering and death and then glory, so will ours. His path is the one that we follow if we want to be with him. To look back with me at verse 24, his instruction here is for all. He says, if anyone would come after me, follow me. There is one path to being with Jesus, of being a Christian, and this is it. There are no other options. And what is his first direction? First, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. Give up your own way. You consider what kind of people would need this command to deny ourselves? Well, it's sinners. It's people who follow their own way. The truth is, we in our sin all follow our own way. Isaiah 53, 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way way. Our way, like stray sheep, is the way of self. We live how we want to. And self is just another way of saying sin. Our way is not the way God has designed us to live. He, as our creator, has a right to direct how we live. As our creator, he knows best how we should live. But in our sinful nature, we all rebel against God and place ourselves in God's place, ourself at the center. The hymn writer John Newton says our primary problem, our greatest enemy is self. He writes, this is the worst enemy we have to deal with, self-will, self-wisdom, self-righteousness, self-seeking, self-dependence, Self-boasting. Especially if you're young, in your 20s or younger, I think you especially need to, to be aware. What Jesus is teaching is completely counter to everything our culture holds most dear. The defining belief of our age is that your innermost desires are your identity. So if you want to know fulfillment... We have to be true to those desires no matter what. What Jesus teaches here is that we have to plug our ears to our culture's siren song. Living for your own desires will not give what it promises. It leads to death. Jesus says rather we are to deny ourselves. So the first step according to Jesus Here in verse 24 is to stop, to repent of the ways that we make ourselves God, that we live for self, and rather renounce the self. Let him deny himself. Second, it is to take up his cross. This is something of a Christian cliche, isn't it? When we talk about a a trial or suffering, a hard path we have to walk, we say it's just my cross to bear. And that's true. But when it becomes a cliche, we can lose its meaning. In our day, crosses are displayed on pulpits. 
They're molded from gold to be necklaces and earrings. Celtic, Celtic crosses are, are popular tattoos and decorative crosses hang on our walls. We've, we've made the cross something beautiful, right? But what Jesus is saying here, a modern parallel would be something like wearing a lynching tree on your neck or decorating your wall with an electric chair. To the apostles, the Roman cross was a gruesome and humiliating torture device meant to brutalize and dehumanize. It was an excruciating death sentence reserved for the worst criminals or the most ostentatious displays of power and cruelty. It's not meant for jewelry. And that, Jesus says, is what we're to pick up if we're to follow Jesus. He means that our self-denial is a death to self. And it is a painful and even humiliating death. He is not calling his disciples, he is not calling you and me to a comfortable and easy path, but to the same path that he walked. Why a cross? Because he carried a cross, a path of suffering, self-denial, and humiliation. If you want to follow Jesus, here is the way. This is the way that he went. Deny self, pick up your cross, and follow him. You know, when Rebecca and I leave our house to come to this building, we always check the traffic. We have the option of taking 95 or Route 1 North, and we always pick, obviously, the path that has the least traffic. That isn't an option following Jesus. There is one road, and it is not the road of least resistance. In fact, some of your translations might have the word must in verse 24. The NIV, the the NASB, have must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Those translations are highlighting the fact that these are imperatives. This isn't an invitation, optional, you can, but an imperative, a command. You must, if you are to follow Jesus, you must deny, take up, to follow. What kind of God would give this command? Does he just want to watch us suffer? Or maybe he wants to make sure there are no wimps following him. The Marines know what I'm talking about. It's their recruiting slogan. The few, the proud, the Marines. Jesus wants to make sure that his disciples are the select, the few, the proud, the strongest. Maybe verse 24 is Jesus' recruiting slogan. Hoorah! Jesus will have the best of the best. No, that's not what verse 24 is. Verse 24 is true because he is worthy. The kind of God that gives this command is the God who is worthy of all. He is the God who is so good and so beautiful that to give him anything less than everything, to hold back our deepest desires for ourselves, would tell a lie about how good and beautiful he is. He is worth giving up even that which is most dear to you, your very selves. Only part of you, even most of you, is not enough for a God this good and beautiful. And this all for God self-denial should show up not just with everything, but in everything. In our time, our money, how we use our gifts, how we use our things, denied to self, given to God for his use. So I ask, is this how the world sees you using yourself and stuff, brother, sister? Does it look like you are using it for you or for Jesus? If we were going to look at your budget Would we be able to tell it belonged to someone else who is denying, or someone who is denying self? 
Could we tell that you're not piling up the riches of this world, but are rich toward God? If we observed how you used your talents, the skills that you have, would it be clear that they are given to God? Especially for us husbands, we are called to love our wives like Christ by giving ourselves up for our wives. Brothers, this verse applies to us. To love our wives in such a way that on the last day, she will thank you for the ways that you sacrificed yourself to prepare her for that day. But we must be clear. We humans have a legal spirit. What I mean is that we naturally think that we must do works in order to earn God's approval. Well, the 19th century Baptist Charles Spurgeon assures us that that would be folly. He compares it this way. One might better try to sail the Atlantic in a paper boat than try to get to heaven on good works. If you try to obey verse 25, 24, to, to earn, to get God's love, you've gone the wrong way. You're bushwhacking your own path to God. Jesus is not commanding these things in order to earn God's favor by our grit, by our austerity. No, he's commanding these things because it was the path Jesus made for us. He first gave up his entire self, his very life for God. He held nothing back. His entire life was spent in service for his good father. Everything he had given to God. His every word for God and for our good. And despite suffering many things, Jesus willingly went to the cross to give up not just his physical life, but to be forsaken by God. The suffering of the cross was not the physical pain primarily, but the spiritual desertion that he experienced the wrath of God against sin, that he suffered more in three hours than any sinner ever will in hell to give us what we could never earn by our good works, the gift of forgiveness and reconciliation with our Heavenly Father. Brothers and sisters, we by our suffering, by our taking up our cross, cannot repeat his substitutionary death, but his suffering is our example First suffering, then glory. This is the way that all disciples are called to go because it is the only way. He must go, suffer, be killed, and rise. This is the only way a just God could deal with our evil and maintain his holiness and justice. Sin had to be dealt with. And since it is the way of our teacher, it is the way of all his students. Any who follow him. That is all in verse 24. Three commands. Deny, self, take up, follow him. The rest of Jesus' teaching here are all supports for those commands. You can notice the logic. Verse 25, 26, 27 all start with that word for. It means because. He's going to give us three reasons why we are to deny, take up, and follow. So, three reasons, three subpoints of our second point as we consider our path, what we must do. Our first reason in verse 25, there is another life. The first reason in verse 25, there is another life. Why should you die to yourself and follow Jesus? Because there's another life to live. Let me reread that verse for us. For, because whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The logic of Jesus' commands in verse 24 rests on the fact that this life is not all there is. He says here, if you try to save your life by denying Jesus, you will lose it. But if you lose it now, he says you will find it. He could be just talking about here and now, in this age, right? And that would be true. The, the life that we live today would be considered a loss if not live for Christ, but, but gain if we live for Him. 
But based on the paragraph, I think he means life in the age to come. You know, we, we all will live forever. All of us came into existence at some point in the past 100 years. We all had a beginning. But none of us will ever stop existing. Yes, we will all die, but we all have souls that will not die. And our existence in eternity is determined by what we do with our life now. Verse 25 says, If we seek to save ourselves now in this life, we lose our life in the age to come. If we lose it now, we will find it then. And notice, he is not advocating just a general loss of life. That any martyr or particularly sacrificial person will find life. No, what does he say? Verse 25. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The motive matters. We must give our lives for Christ, for his honor, to obey him, to seek his kingdom first. Why should you die to yourself today? Because you are promised life tomorrow in the age to come. Well, that's the first reason. We have a second reason in verse 26. Second, in verse 26, your soul has infinite value. Why should you die to yourself now? Because your soul has infinite value. He says in verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? It's frankly inconceivable for us to imagine having what he promises here, the entire world. This is a case of hyperbole. Try to imagine, for the rest of your life, you had any and every possession you could possibly want without price. Plus, if you have the whole world, all governments and authorities ultimately do whatever you want. You have the whole world. But in exchange, you lose your soul. Does that balance out? That's Jesus' question. What will that profit a man? Jesus states the same thing in reverse next. There is no purchase price high enough to buy back a soul. There is nothing you can give that equals the value of one man's soul. Seriously, wake up. Hear what he is saying here. It is staggering. The world and everything in it will be lost. Your soul never will. The simple soul of one human being is worth more than all the riches of the entire world. Get out your balance, your scale. On one side, put trillions of dollars Gold and gems, luxury cars, every mansion, tropical islands, the assets of every Fortune 500 company, the richest foods in the world, and everything else you could ever desire. And on the other side, put one human soul. The soul is of greater value. That fact should revolutionize the way you think about the world. Your possessions, yourself, and everyone around you. No matter how old you are, from the unborn to the elderly, no matter their skin color, no matter their disabilities or health or wealth, all people have a God-given soul of infinite value. Frankly, that means, church, the goal of our charity and love as Christians, the good works we do for others, is not to enrich them. We don't, for example, host a community giveaway to help other people gain the world. Yes, of course, the Bible consistently calls on us to share what we have with those in need. If you want to think more about that, I invite you to our Wednesday night Bible study this week. We'll study Ephesians 4.28 and the command there to work in order to share It is a command. But consider what Jesus says here in verse 26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Your goal in your good works cannot be simply to relieve a lack of worldly goods. Christians should care about suffering, 
all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. The suffering of the soul forever. And frankly, brothers and sisters, we are the only organization in the world, the church, that has this as its operational objective. To relieve eternal suffering by proclaiming the gospel of God of a Savior who suffered for you. There are lots of wonderful organizations, organizations that you should partner with to relieve the suffering of this world, to give to those in need. But don't miss out on what is most important, the one unique thing we have to contribute to the world. Not merely our generosity, but the gospel of God. So in your love, meeting physical needs, call on people to give up the things of this world, to follow Jesus in order to gain eternal riches in heaven. Or in receiving the charity of others. Remember that Jesus offers without price what is infinitely more valuable, the eternal security of your soul through death. So to review the three reasons. Why can you follow whatever the cost? Well, first in 25, because there is another life to live. Second, in verse 26, because your soul has infinite value. And third, why you should deny yourself and follow Jesus now, because glory is coming. Glory is coming. Our third reason is found for us in verse 27, the last four, or because. Verse 28 will reinforce this reason in in verse 27. So verse 27, For because the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. I wonder how do you hear this verse? Is it a warning or a promise? What will Jesus give to you when he comes with his angels in glory? Jesus reminds us here that every single person, every person hearing my voice right now, will be held personally accountable before the creator of the universe for the way that each of us has lived, including our attitudes, our words, our actions, all in response to the witness of God in our conscience, in nature, and in Scripture. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, Paul says in Romans 14.10. And God will judge the world through his son, Jesus Christ. He writes in, Luke writes in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus Christ will be our judge on that day. There will be no appealing the verdict that Jesus hands down. The question will be, in this life, once this life is over, what did you do? Did you commit to Jesus as supremely valuable or live for yourself? Jesus is saying here in verse 27 that glory, the glory his disciples were expecting is coming but only after suffering and only for those who take shelter in the blood of Jesus by turning away from self, by denying self and trusting in Christ. Only for those who have followed Christ, the path of their Savior, taking up their cross and following Him. If you want to save your life and receive glory when He returns, you must be with Jesus today in this life. In cross-carrying self-denial, there is simply no other way. You can have glory with Jesus, just not in the way the disciples were expected. But you might ask, how can we be sure of that? What assurance do we have of that? Well, because he would give his disciples, them and us, a behind-the-scenes preview of his glory, a foretaste of what is to come, That's the point of verse 28. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Again, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. He refers to the messianic figure who will have dominion. 
What he's promising here is before some of them die, before they come into judgment, before this age is over, they will see this with their own eyes. They will see that he is bringing in his kingdom, the kingdom that will be consummated on that last day. How they would see this, though, isn't specified. You might look to the next passage, Matthew 16, 17, where three of his disciples get to see Jesus in glory. Kind of like he'll have at his return during the transfiguration. There Jesus shines like the sun, his clothes become white as light. Perhaps, maybe in a preliminary sense, that's what Jesus means. Or maybe he means that they will witness more fully in his resurrection and ascension and heavenly reign of his coming kingdom. Or maybe it's in the fact that most of his disciples will see his kingdom expand as the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Judea into the nations. Well, whatever Jesus might mean, they can have certain confidence that this far-off future will happen because he shows it to them in preview. Take your pick, any of the three. Whichever it is, we can see it too. We have a foretaste of what is to come in the transfiguration, in Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and heavenly reign, in the growth of his kingdom continuing to this day, that the Son of Man will come with the angels in the glory of his Father to usher in his eternal kingdom. Why can you die to yourself and follow Jesus Because there is another life to live, because your soul has infinite value, and because glory is coming, of this you can be certain. Jesus has told us here how it all ends, and knowing this should dramatically change the way we live this life. As unexpected as Christ's suffering might seem, it is God's plan. The Christ was to be rejected and killed because of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There is no other way to rescue sinners from the judgment we deserve. As unexpected as Christ's suffering might seem, it is also our path. Those who follow Jesus must walk as he walked in self-denial, carrying a cross. But the hope is certain. We know the end. If we die for Christ, our souls will receive glory with him in the life that is to come. Hear this assurance from Christ himself as we close. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise that this morning we have the opportunity to hear your word and believe him who sent Christ, that we would now have eternal life. Lord, that we now can give up our life for the life that is to come. Father, we praise you that Christ came according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that he might die the death that we deserve, that we might receive the life that he earned. Or that we might now not come into judgment because we have passed in him from death to life. So, Father, we pray you'd give us the strength, Lord, to deny ourselves to turn from sin, to pick up our cross, to willingly go in the way of Jesus, in suffering, in humility, Lord, that we might in that day also be with Christ, to receive glory when he comes again, with the glory of the Father. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.